1: This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors most teams either a rely on their users to report errors or b use log files and lists of errors to debug problems that's such a waste of time instantly know what's broken and why with rollbar reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors you can integrate rollbar into your existing workflow it integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error give rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelock.
0: Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows at the changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at
2: JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Uh, hello and welcome to... Uh, another episode of JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. Uh, I'll be your host today, Nick Nisi, and I'm joined with my fellow panelists, Suze Hinton. Hey,
3: Suze. Hey, how's it going? It's good to be back. Yeah, Good to be
2: back with you as well. And and our other panelist is uh, Jared Santo.
4: Hello. Excited to chat with y'all. Dev tools, debugging, fun stuff.
2: Yeah lots of fun and very practical for everyone. So let's dig right into it today. Um, We thought we'd talk about uh, debugging and some DevTools magic and kind of how we approach um, that part of the job of of developing with JavaScript and how we manage bugs or deal with bugs and uh, some cool features that the platforms provide us. So uh, I guess I'll start off with with a a basic question. Um, How do you use how do you get into debugging? Um, like, you you have a bug that you uh, don't really know much information about. What What are kind of the first steps that you take? Uh, why don't we start with you, Suze?
3: Yeah, I start super, super basic. So usually when I'm developing something uh, that's more on the front end side in the browser, I'll usually just have dev tools popped up at the bottom, like always on showing the console tab. And then whenever I'm sort of developing a feature and sort of manually testing it, I'll usually just look for an error. And then if the error shows up, which it usually does, right, because we're not all perfect the first time when we code something, if if the error is super, super obvious and there's like a line of code, then I'll, I'll just go straight back to my code and fix it. But if it's something that I, I don't know what it is, generally I'll Google it really quickly first. And if I don't really find anything that's specific to my case, that's when I sort of start digging deeper and deeper. And so what I love about the dev tools in every single browser that I've worked with is that it gives you the line number. You can generally click on the error and it will take you to that source code. And then that's where I'll set a breakpoint and start stepping through, refresh the page and start stepping through. So mine definitely starts super high level because I find that even though um, being able to kind of pause your page execution and step through those um, those parts of your code, that's very time consuming. And sometimes it's super not necessary if it's a really, really simple problem. So that's kind of how I start, like super high level and sort of go deeper from there.
2: Yeah, that's uh, really good. That's kind of how I start to, uh, I'll start really high level, um, usually with, uh, if it's not an obvious thing, I might put... Console log statements in there, and start going that way, and then eventually dig into uh, actually the full-blown debugger and, and stepping through code. How about you, Jared? Uh, do you have any particular approach that you take?
4: Uh, well, I think all the technical, like the technical aspects of what I do, change based on kind of the bug itself and you know the environment in which I find it. But I mean, I do the first thing that every developer does is I start pointing fingers at other people, right? So like, could it be (laughs) the browser vendors that did this? Could it be my dependencies that are causing me issues? I mean, maybe Apple made this laptop really poorly and that's why it was not working right. Uh, So after I've exhausted all of my potential, you know, get blames at other people, uh, (laughs) then I turn to myself and I look inward and I find where the bugs truly come from. Uh, So... In terms of the actual thing that I do, I mean, I'm pretty lame, and I've always been very much an alert debugger. Um, in terms of like you know using like in the old days, we'd use the actual alert uh, function, and like we'd see object object and think, oh, that wasn't very useful. But I've very much been a trace debugger my whole career in terms of like just out you know console logging, and I I never set a breakpoint, almost never, unless I'm like super stuck, but. Um, I just put trace statements in until I can kind of chase down the source of what's going on. And, um, that usually does it now, like Sue's, I will start very high level and I'll try to first determine, you know, what is the actual bug? Because lots of times we see symptoms and those aren't like, it's kind of like a root cause analysis, right? And sometimes you get to that really quickly. Um, especially if it's a bug that you can kind of intuit what's happening right when you see the symptom, but lots of times there's red herrings. And things that you think are happening, but it's actually something else. And so you can't really fix a bug until you identify it, isolate it, and make sure that it's actually causal and not just symptomatic. I don't know the word is for being a symptom, but it would have made me really smart if I would have drilled that. Is it causal (laughs) or symptomatic? Symptomatic, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Just making up words (laughs) over here. (laughs) Um, yeah, isolation identification, right? Once you have an actual diagnosis and that's where I usually will use tracing tools to come to that, um, then, you know, fixing it is, is a whole nother aspect of, of the job.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I I do run into a lot of issues with, with that. I, I, like, I will start with the kind of trace debugging uh, as you mentioned, and, and start mm-hmm. going down that route. Uh, but sometimes I get thrown into projects that I really have no idea of what's actually going on. Maybe I'm just um, like hired as support to come in and, and try and diagnose one specific bug in a codebase mm. I don't know or uh, do other things. And so uh, I've been trying to get really efficient at isolating the bugs and, and uh, isolating where things could be occurring and then trying to set up the traces, you know, just in that piece of code instead of the whole entire code base um, and getting smarter about that. And that, that can be the big challenge. And especially with how complex JavaScript has gotten in recent years with all of the uh, build tools and Webpack and source maps and all of that can be really hard to find, you know, the bug is actually online 8,000 of this single JavaScript file and, and stepping in through there. Um, But it can be a lot of fun too. I, I, A lot of times I like to think of myself as like Dr. House standing in front of the the whiteboard trying to figure out (laughs) what the diagnosis is, crossing off a bunch of them. It's never lupus uh, and just continuing on from there. (laughs) It's never lupus.
3: (laughs) I feel like Um, there's a pun coming on there with lupus (laughs) and like something about JavaScript loops or something like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: Oh man, that would be so clever if I had thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so some things that I'll do to to try and get in there is I will use the um, console statements, but I will also use the debugger and try and pause the debugger when the error comes. And if you're really lucky, you'll be able to just set that pause on errors um, setting in Chrome or Firefox, and it will just pause on the line that is going to throw an error. But oftentimes uh, it seems like the errors are being caught and So you have to enable that checkbox Mm. to, to tell it to break on caught errors as well. But the problem is as you, as you learn a lot of library code throws errors that are caught. And so you, like if your bug is, uh, several thousand lines down and there's a lot of library code that's running in the meantime, there might be a lot of, uh, caught bugs and you might have to step through that a hundred times before you get there. So do you have any, um, any tips that you or tricks that you use to kind of help speed that process up
4: It's gonna to have to be used to As like i said i'm i'm very uh i use rudimentary tools and and methods and and my brain um so i don't really have tips and tricks i do have i mean when i say i do the tracing this kind of gets down into further down our 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 timeline or our uh, outline when we talk about uh dev tools tricks that we like and one that i use all the time in combination with console.log um Instead of stopping the world is printing the state of the world at a specific point in the code, and then in the console you can right click on that output and say store as temporary variable or something along mm-hmm. these lines. Yep, and it will just like assign it to a temp one and now you're you know you have an object or you have a function reference and you can manipulate it there um, and kind of dive down and you know run a function on it again or do what you have to do. and so it's kind of a combination of I'm not stopping the world, but I'm like peeking into it at a specific point and able to manipulate it. And so it's like logging plus storage temporary variable or basically like <laughs> my left hand and my right hand. But that's, I don't think that's necessarily good advice. It's just what I do.
2: Uh, I was just going to say that's great advice, um, being able to to do that. And that is most of the time when I step into a debugging session. It's just because I want to figure out what the state of something is and go from there. I'm not usually updating the state as I'm debugging mm-hmm. or or anything like that. Uh, so that's, that's a really cool thing. And, and kind of following along those lines of uh, a cool tip, uh, I guess, is using console logs to actually output the values of, of variables. Uh, obviously, you can do that, just say console log, and put the variable name in there. Uh, but one cool thing with ES6 is if you wrap it in curly braces, And just put that out there. It will output an object where the name of the variable is the key, and then the value is the value. So instead of having to like put the value name comma the the value itself, you can just kind of do that all in one statement just by by using Mm. that shortcut.
4: That is a cool idea. I've never done that. Is that like using what's that that term? The new feature like decompression or d
2: what's the word? Destructuring. Uh, kind of the opposite of that. Where if you have a a, you want me. to create an object where the key is the, val- the name of the value that you're putting in there. You can just um, it in, wrap it, you it. don't have to say like foo colon foo, you can just put foo in there.
4: And it will take the variable name and assign that as the key value in an object and the the, the, the value in the variable will be the value. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yep. Yeah, okay. That's cool.
3: Hey, Nick, do you know if you can pass that directly to console.table? Ooh.
2: Uh, that's a good question. O- honestly, console.table is something that I always think I should use and I never really think about it in the moment. Uh, but every time I see an example of it I'm like, wow, that's so cool.
4: Yeah, it makes good for <laughs> animated GIFs and images on Twitter. But wh- I've, every time I try to use it like the the data is not in the format that table would make it make sense and it ends up being like munged and then I was like, why am I doing this when I could just console log it?
2: Yeah, that's that's a a, a cool thing. There's also a uh, a really cool um, feature of I think just Chrome DevTools specifically, but in the same way that Chrome uh, like console.table allows you to um, see like a, a tabular uh, display of the data. So you see columns and rows showing all of that. So it's easier to consume. You can actually create those ki- uh, those types of logging for the, the um, console in Chrome yourself. And so, uh, I'll, I'll add a link to the show notes, but one example I've seen is, um, being able to plot out, uh, coordinates and then, uh, so you can say console dot plot or something and and name it yourself. And when you output that to the console, instead of just seeing like X, Y coordinates, you can actually like output a graph that plots those on there. Like that's just a really simple example, but you could do other things where you maybe take uh, geographic coordinates and then show a map of where that is in the console. Hmm. That's really advanced. Uh, I haven't done anything like that, but I've seen articles.
4: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A lot of these things are like, like awesome features, but then in practical day to day, I just never even like, it doesn't cross my mind to even try.
2: Yeah. So kind of moving into, uh, that section, um, what are some of, of your favorite dev tools, tips and tricks? I always get so much out of, uh, talks and presentations like this because there's just so much that, uh, is there that I don't use that I probably should be using? So, do you have any cool tips and tricks, uh, Suze, Do you want to start?
3: Yeah, I I really like styling console output. Like, if you're not in the kind of breakpoint setting mood, and we sort of talked about how sometimes that's not always the optimal solution, and just Outputting a ton of traces is is really going to answer all your questions. Being able to style the console output so you're not just fishing through lines and lines of logs that all look the same um, is really really cool. And so you can use this kind of string interpolation to like CSS style. Um, the actual um, text that comes out in the console log. So you can change the color of it, the size of it, um, and do all sorts of other really, really cool stuff. And I think that that's not necessarily always known about, but Mm. if you are, you know, fishing through traces, it can really help you pull out the things that that matter the most. That is
2: really cool. I didn't realize that you could do that, but you can do things like pretty much anything in, in CSS with that, right?
3: yeah pretty much which is kind of fun and i've definitely popped open the dev tools like on um just general websites i've been surfing and sometimes it will dump out you know like a a very very styled um bunch of logs that are saying something like we're hiring devs or something like that so (laughs) i've seen people do some pretty fun stuff with it (laughs) that is cool yeah wow very
2: cool
4: that was exactly the use case i was considering was was you know, Easter eggs and stuff like that, where you, where it actually makes sense to take the time and style it to look really cool was when you're trying to, you know, find, have somebody find it Um, where it could be useful if you have lots of traces, like you said. But other than that, um, there could be a lot of yak shaving going on if you're spending lots of time just styling the output of your console logs.
2: It could also be really interesting for like uh, maybe long running log messages that could be in development and stripped out in production. Uh, that's not something that I normally do either, but um, you know, maybe having specific events that are fired in a, like a bold font or or a certain color that are always there during development to help you out—that could be really cool and it, kind of an easy um, dev tools extension that you add to the code yourself.
3: Yeah, totally. I know that debug. Um, the module that's usually used with um, Node.js console applications is super, super popular, and that's because it just does add a little bit of style and it sort of color codes the timestamps and things like that. So I'm imagining that you could do something very similar but have it pretty lightweight. And so when you are working with teams, you can actually switch that on during your development phase.
2: Mm -hmm. So is that like a Node module that you you install and it it gives you special... um... Log statements for node or uh, what is that
3: yeah it's it's really cool actually it does work in the browser so if you look it up um on npm uh in the registry it does actually it is able to be used in the browser as well and so there's screenshots of it there but what it essentially allows you to do is instead of using console log um you import it and you can create these different, um, I guess, scoped or get different context debug um, logs. And so you don't just have like a generic console.log, you can have different contexts. So maybe you have some events that fire with a certain style and keyword attached to it. And then maybe um, you have a different debug context with, it, you know, using a different variable name to log it out where it, it, you can style it differently. And it's like non event based logs, for example, and I'm doing a terrible job of explaining it. But what I love about the debug module is you can actually, um, you know, create different instances of it and then style it differently depending on what you're actually logging out.
2: Oh, wow. Very cool. I looking at the screenshot for it. I I think I've definitely seen this in action, uh, but Mm -hmm. never actually used it.
3: Yeah. And a lot of the time it is actually Already being used in a lot of popular node modules you might be using. It's just that mm-hmm. you have to turn it on with like an environment variable, and then you'll start seeing like the inner workings of that node module start dumping things out. So it's very useful when you you are actually maintaining a module, and you and you can tell people to turn that on if they raise an issue on your GitHub repo or something like that, just so you can get some extra diagnostics from them.
2: That's a great idea. It looks looks really helpful.
3: <laughs> yeah, I use it a lot because I I maintain some super finicky libraries um and i need to know the exact order that certain things are happening in and instead of having to copy paste snips of code for people to run it's way easier to tell them hey can you just turn this on and dump the actual output into you know a comment on on this issue
4: that's a great idea and probably an example of where trace tracing specifically is is quite a bit different for library authors than it is for application developers and probably even a different and uh, nick maybe you can speak to this with larger teams versus smaller teams um where in every small team that i've worked on like we use log statements to figure out a problem and then we purge them because they're because they're noise and unnecessary in in like in code uh, a library author like you said you want all those trace statements to exist as part of the software and maybe use all the log levels or whatever flags you need in order to, you know, use that for other people using your library debugging because that's such a great implementation of saying just run this again with this particular variable and then, you know, you're you're basically doing recon without them having any effort. That's spectacular. I've also seen in large teams where there's like trace statements similarly to what I would think in a library, but they just kind of live in the code at all times and they're either commented out or they have log levels. And um that offends my personal sensibilities It's like, get that out of there. But I see if it's a huge app and you have these recurring problems, you want to just leave, leave them there. Is that something you're, you see a lot, Nick, is projects where there's like logging, specifically applications where there's logging that's like integrated into the app and is always there.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, in some of the apps that I write, I, I don't typically add that. Um, and it's stripped out at like at build time. Uh, as, as part of the build process, but, um, yeah, I've definitely seen that, uh, like additional information about like network requests is, is a big one. I think that I, I can recall. Mm. So, um, some, some cool dev tools, things that I've seen, um, that, that are really helpful. And I'll be honest, a lot of these dev tools, uh, tips really seem like they would have been really amazing before we started building all of our code and, um, and yeah. having complex build processes. Uh, but there are still some really good uh, tricks to do uh, with that. And one of them is black boxing. Uh, and Firefox and Chrome both support this, where you can, while you're stepping through code, uh, or you can set up a regular expression uh, in the dev tools itself, and you can say that any script that has, like, jQuery in its name or uh, this specific script, uh, this spe- sp- the specific version of React Um, just black box that. And what that means is that when you're setting, when you're like stepping through code uh, and you're looking at the stack trace uh, in the right side, right-hand side, uh, don't ever show React in that stack trace. Just assume that that code is perfect and working, even though that might not be the case. Um, Just assume that that is working and that I think the the bug is actually in my code. And so it will save you a lot of time not having to step through or, or look up the the stack trace through all of your library code. And you can just focus on the code that you've written uh, or a specific library that you're bringing in and using. It also will prevent it from uh, stopping on errors inside of those files that are black boxed. So it'll just kind of stick to errors that are in your code and not anywhere else. So that can really help you to cut down on the amount of information that can be thrown at you when you're in a debugging session. That's so nice.
4: Love it. And I had never even heard of that. So thank you very much.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool little tricks like that. Um, It can be hard to... Well, the nice thing about Chrome right now, uh, at least, is if you do set up blackboxing like that, uh, it'll actually put a little message at the top of the stack trace that says there are some scripts that are blackboxed. So click here if you want to actually see those, and then you can right-click on those and unblackbox them if you like, and uh, then they'll just be part of the flow again. So uh, pretty easy to manage now. I think it was a little bit more difficult uh, in the earlier iterations of that but pretty easy right now
3: that's really cool because i have the memory of a goldfish and so whenever (laughs) i'm whenever i'm using the debugging tools i try so hard not to check too many boxes where i'm just gonna completely forget the really kind of like artisanal bespoke state i've put my teftels into so it's good <laughs> to know that I, it sounds like i'm not the only one with that problem and chrome have done a good job at, at kind of making those little call outs to reset it back
4: side note when you said you had the memory of a goldfish i thought you were going to ne- then tell us about this memory that you have of a goldfish that you maybe you owned <laughs> when you were a child <laughs> i was like where is she going with this <laughs> never heard that phrase before but i like it
2: so what do you have, Jared? Uh, tell us a, a cool In trick. In terms of, yeah, out.
4: tips and tricks. So as I confessed to earlier, I'm very much a console.log plus right-click and store as temporary variable person. That being said, there are a few other uh, things I use all the time, and these are the kind of tips that you either know and you're rolling your eyes at right now or you haven't heard and you're like, mind is exploding. But um, they're very basic. Um, specifically, there's shorthand references to specific things inside the DevTools Tools. Uh, dollar sign zero will will refer to the element that is currently focused in the elements panel which is super useful for grabbing a handler to something and then um, running some code against it and then dollar sign underscore in the console will um, pull up the last return statement and it's basically a reference to the previous return statement so those are small little things but once you know them you'll use them all day every day and then the other thing I do a lot is, in the elements panel specifically, is uh, you can drag and drop the elements to reorder the DOM. And again, either you either you just haven't tried yet and you're like, whoa, you can do that, or you have rolling your eyes, yeah, I've been doing that for years. It's not a new thing, but it's super useful, especially when you have maybe like a CSS specificity problem, or you didn't necessarily do the design, but you're wanting to change the HTML and wonder, can I put this div... Uh, inside this other thing without screwing up any of the styles, well, you can actually just drag and drop the elements right there in the page into the, you know, in and out of the tree in order to determine if it's gonna look different or something like that. So I use that daily, daily. And then one kind of aspirational feature, which I haven't used yet, but is super cool, and I just learned about recently, and I want to use, is that you can actually generate a screenshot of a single element. So instead of the full page or even a section of the page or dragging the thing around it, um, you can select an element in the Elements panel and then use Command-Shift-P or I think it's Control-Shift-P on Windows to bring up that little menu executor thing. And inside there, there's a menu item called Capture Node Screenshot. And this might be Chrome only, but I'm not sure because I haven't tried it in the other um, browsers. Hopefully not. And that will take a screenshot of that specific element as it exists right now in the page and then store it to your downloads folder or what have you and that sounds very useful i just haven't actually Ooh. done it besides trying it but it yeah. could be useful
3: i wonder if you could use that with puppeteer
4: oh yeah to automate like some snatching of specific elements
3: yeah to keep like a patent library refreshed or something like that
4: mm, that's a great idea yeah that's a really good idea did you two know about that one, or have you used it before? It was news to me until just like a week or so so
2: back. As you were talking, I just tried it, and it's <laughs> really cool. <laughs> there you go. I
3: Learned did not know about it. Day.
2: Cool. Another one that I uh, really like is um, condition- well, sorry, uh, conditional and DOM breakpoints. Uh, so conditional being the ability to uh, only stop on this code, if you if some condition is met. And I actually don't use it for that. I use it for uh, logging. If Like if I just want to add logging to a page that maybe I don't have actually downloaded, uh, I will add a conditional breakpoint and then just put a console.log statement in that conditional breakpoint. And what it'll do is it'll hit that out and that returns falsy. And so it won't actually break there, but you can continue on and just add incremental logging as you need it. Uh, to see things without actually changing the underlying source.
3: That is a total lifesaver. You know, you know when you're just constantly refreshing and it's maybe a situation where y- you can't always uh, faithfully reproduce it, that yeah. is huge. I actually didn't know you could do that. And you know when it always pauses on the breakpoint and you get really annoyed and you have to like click forward and it feels so unproductive, I'm totally going to use this.
2: Yeah. Definitely. Uh, it, it's a big help if you are running into uh, some kind of race condition, uh, because like you said, if you actually hit the breakpoint, it pauses JavaScript execution right there. And then maybe things have settled by the time you start executing again, and uh, you won't be able to reproduce the bug in, in, that, in that sense. But um, if you're able to add logging in, uh, you know, sometimes you can can glean more information about that without actually having to stop the the execution of the JavaScript. I love that. Yeah. Then the other one I mentioned is uh, DOM breakpoints, and this is really cool. If you have something on the page that um, is being updated, but you don't really know what part of the code is updating that, so maybe uh, it's the color of uh, a button, or it's the text inside of this div, or something like that. You can uh, right click on the element in the dev tools and then say break on and there's a couple of options there's subtree modifications so if uh, any of its children are updated attribute modifications if any of its attributes are modified or if the node is removed uh, and it will stop on the line of javascript that uh, caused the modification to happen to that element or to its children and then you can look up this look at the stack trace and see uh, maybe what part of your code triggered that node removal or, or modification which can be really helpful if you have no idea about the code base, and you're just trying to to get in there and quickly find uh, where where things are going wrong
3: that is super cool because like what would you have to do normally to like emulate that at your debugging? would you have to do like a mutation observer or something like that would be super annoying to set up mm. I'm, i I really want to try this out as well. I, I did know it existed, but I haven't had a good use case yet.
2: yeah, I think you could do it with a um, with a mutation observer, uh, but this this is definitely much simpler to. To help figure that out, another uh, thing that's kind of related to that, although not really, is you can uh, by you you can pass a an element to a, a method on the console called get event listeners, and it will print out all of the event listeners that are set up on that element. So if it has a bunch of click el, uh, events or um, other types of events, you can uh, get a list of those, and then you can right click on those and say show in source, and it will go to that function that that is the event listener callback and then you can see what's actually being called
4: can you just pass in window or something like can you get all of them that's a good question because that would blow my mind because i've had that question (laughs) plenty of times like i want to know all of the things that are listening and what functions are gonna oh dude you just made my day
2: (laughs) i did not know this i need this in my life yeah, so it returns an object back, and the keys are the events that are, that are being listened for. So, like, I'm just doing it on Stack Overflow right now, and there's a hash change event, key down, load message, resize, a whole bunch. All right.
4: Well, we can go home now. I'm happy. We've, uh, <laughs> we've, we've accomplished what we came here to accomplish.
3: <laughs> I feel like we all learned something from each other.
1: This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Hired. One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you, there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so companies send you offers with salary, benefits, and even equity up front. All you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for. They work with more than 6,000 companies from startups to large publicly traded companies and 14 major tech hubs in North America and Europe. You get to see all of your interview requests. You can accept, reject, or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone. And here's the kicker. It's totally free. This isn't going to cost you anything. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hired, they're even going to give you a bonus. It's normally $300, but since you're a listener of JS Party, they're going to give you $600 instead. And even if you're not looking for a job, you can refer a friend and Hired will send you a check for, get this, $1,337 when they accept the job. As you can see, Hired makes it too easy. Get started at Hired.com slash JS. Party.
2: All right. So, what are some cool things uh, that JavaScript can do that uh, maybe aren't really apparent to to others, or, or some really cool, I guess, going along with the line the the topic of tips and tricks, uh, things that. That JavaScript, the language can do. Uh, Jared, do you want to start off there?
4: Sure, yeah, absolutely. And uh, this segment, I'm, I've am i internally named JS can do that and uh, I like that because that's how I read. If you guys have seen the VS can do that.com website where they basically show off VS code can do that, I guess not VS can do that, where they show off stuff that Visual Studio code can do. Um, every time I see that, I read it can do that, and so every time I see it, i just <laughs> so that's so that's a uh, uh, side note. So, uh, what are some things that are are not apparent but you can do? So here's one that I learned relatively recently, and I think it's ES6, anyways. So it wouldn't have helped to know it previous to that, but uh, we now have the spread operator, as you all know, the ellipsis, the dot dot dot, uh, which has a couple of uh, a couple of things that it does, but one of those things is it allows you to basically expand an array into another one, and so uh, if you combine that with sets, which is a I think that's a relatively new class, I'm not sure showing my ignorance a little bit there. Yeah,
2: they're they're both from ES6. They're both from ES6.
4: Okay. If you combine those together, you have a, a really quick hand way of uniquifying an array. So this is something that happens to me often. I'll have a an array of elements, maybe it's um, a bunch of dates, like date objects, and there's possibilities that uh, there's duplicates in there, and maybe the user has clicked the same thing twice, or however it happens, they have merged two arrays together and now I have array with some overlaps. And um, it'd be nice to have a .unique function, I believe like lodash and uh, libraries like that will have a .unique. But without those things, uh, it's kind of a previously been a pain to just say, okay, given this an array, I want to uniquify it. However, if you use the spread operator, let's, let's say you have an array called, uh, I'll get the most creative name, foo. So you have an array called foo, and foo has, you know, five elements in it. If you want to uniquify that array, you can basically create a new set and pass the array to the set. So the, set, the array is, instead, is what you're passing to the set constructor, and a set has to have unique elements. That's part of what sets are, so there's no duplicates in sets. And um, that will give you a set of unique elements, but you didn't want a set, right? We started with an array, we want to finish with an array. So that's where the spread operator comes in. So if you pass uh, the spread of that set into an array, it basically converts it back. So uh, I'll put the actual code, I guess, in the notes as I'm describing it orally here and it's sounding ridiculous in my brain. So uh, that way you can look at it. But it's like this really cool little shorthand where you can basically uniquify an array by passing a set uh, with a spread operator, combining those two together. I've used that recently and I thought that is... Neat. I didn't know JS could do that.
3: <laughs> um,
4: <laughs> last one for me. This one's really brief, but I uh, use it all the time. Anytime you have a bunch of, like, or a singular falsy value, you know, like those things that aren't false with a capital F, but they're falsy, like null, undefined, empty string, zero, I believe. Although well, I might get into some of the JavaScript words there. Zero true. I can't remember. Anyways, no, if you have false. those, it is false. Very good. So zero Things that are false but you don't have the actual Boolean value. Uh, you can use the bang bang operator, which is also fun to say, and <laughs> that will basically uh, convert it into Boolean. So, the same thing on the true side. If you have something that's truthy, but you actually want true, if you do bang bang and then the variable, uh, it's a double negation and it will Booleanize it and then convert it. And so, you can go from false E to false. And that's nice to have. And so those are my two things
2: that JS can do that hopefully, uh, if you didn't know, now you know. Jared, I just have to ask a a very serious question. When you're using that operator, uh, do you actually blurt out, bang, bang? (laughs) If you were working in an office, would everybody just look at you? (laughs) I I don't blurt it out, but I definitely say it in my head every single time.
3: (laughs) I love that.
2: I I feel like I do do that. I do say bang. bang. (laughs) (laughs)
4: It kind of goes, there's that song, Bang Bang, um, that like opens up Kill Bill. Is it Cher? I think it's Cher. Potentially. I know Quentin Tarantino is a fan because there's a version that's very kind of chilled out. And it opens up Kill Bill, I believe. And uh, it's a spectacular song. So I do think of that as well.
3: It makes me think of that. um, I don't know whether this is an American or an Australian ad, but the um, Easy Off Bam Cleaner.
4: What, What? Easy Off Bam Cleaner?
3: Yeah, it's called Easy Off Bam, and their tagline is "Bam and the dirt's gone." And I'm just thinking, like, "Bang bang and the fake bullion's gone." <laughs>
4: <laughs> you should start an advertisement for this feature.
3: Anyway, that's what I thought of. Uh,
4: report real-time feedback from the chat room. Uh, apparently, the "Bang bang" song is by Nancy Sinatra, not by Cher. <sighs> Maybe oh, there's, there's a another might do a cover. Song. Oh, possibly.
2: Very popular. Very good song. Yeah. And I, I also did a search for it. And the first thing that came up was Jesse J and Ariana Grande and Nicki Minaj. So oh, uh, all generations are, are <laughs> welcome.
4: There you go. So Suze, on your list of things that JS can do, you have binary literals, which I don't even know what that is. So please uh, school us.
3: Yeah. I was like really excited, but also frustrated to find out that th- I think this has been a feature since ES 2015. <laughs> and so I, I felt <laughs> like I was super. Super late to the party, but only finding out about it. So, you, so uh, JavaScript supports things like um, byte, sort of bytes, I guess, in hexadecimal format, um, and it's it supported that for a really long time. And and so some of you might know that I write a lot of JavaScript hardware libraries and just general projects with JavaScript hardware. And so using um, hex in JavaScript is pretty common for me um, in order to kind of send opcodes and things like that to hardware. Um, But sometimes you just want it to be in the full binary format. So, you know, instead of, um, you know, instead of having like FF as the, the hex code, you can actually have like eight ones in a row, right? I'm pretty sure that's 255. Someone correct me if it's not. Um, And so, that is so convenient to have that. And then the way that you write it out is you have zero B and then you write your bits from there and it doesn't just support like, um, you know, eight, eight bits, it supports like longer than that. So it's pretty cool. Um, I really needed it recently when I was, uh, working on a steganography project, where I was trying to encode messages in images. And then I was trying to then decode the message back out of the images. And because you're working with like a bit at a time, um, using hexadecimals is actually really frustrating. And, and having to, you, you kind of have to write the bits out in string format and then somehow figure out like a function to then convert that properly back into a hex code. And so that's now unnecessary. And I wish I'd known about it earlier.
4: All well, you need a time travel device. <laughs> Where did I put that time travel device you can go back and teach yourself that or you can go back and listen to this episode past you.
2: I, I haven't, I like Jared, I hadn't really heard or understood what these were. Uh, but is this like specifically like being able to write, like um, if you wanted to write like 255 in binary, you could do zero B and then eight ones. Is that what you're talking about?
3: Yes, exactly. Rather than having to do like zero X F F. And then that's really the only sort of, I guess, like that's the closest you can get to actually representing something that you can manipulate with bit shifting and things like that. Oh, very cool. So you can actually like, you know, because like not all of us are that great at being able to flip flop between, you know, looking at a hex number and knowing approximately what that is in bits. And so having it spelled out like, I guess that's the point of a binary literal, like actually Mm. seeing it, all of the ones and zeros is super helpful even when you're debugging, but even just being able to reason about your program. Um, Because especially when you're doing bit masks and things like that, you don't have to wonder what exactly was that bit mask that I'm using? You can literally see them all laid out, you know, next to each other, which is kind of amazing.
2: Interesting. Yeah, that would be really helpful. Fun side note. uh, I think one of the very first things that, Kind of got me into programming was a book on steganography that I got when I was in high school, and yeah, it's just a really cool field.
3: Yeah, I I just feel like I was it when I was a kid. I was really into like um, cryptography and things like that, um, and ciphers and all that kind of stuff. So I got really excited just because I had books similar to that, but not steganography ones. And so steganography kind of makes me feel nostalgic about, you know, hiding data and encoding it and things like that.
2: Yeah. I just think it would be so fun to do like ultimate Easter eggs with stuff like that, like hiding things. I don't know. (laughs) But speaking of, uh, bitwise operations, um, one of the, the cool JS can do that, uh, tricks that I had involved. You said it wrong. You said it wrong. JS can do that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh w- one of my um cool tips I guess is uh using the bitwise operator which is the the tilde symbol on your on your keyboard um and specifically using that with uh something like index of to basically convert that to uh, uh. A, a a truthy falsy value for finding something in an array, because like if you used index of and the thing that you're looking for is the at index zero in the array, right. well that would return falsy. But the I don't fully understand what it does, but the bitwise <laughs> operator uh, shifts that so that uh, it would actually be one and the negative one uh, that would be returned if nothing was found will be shifted into zero, so that will return falsy. Um, it's not something that I typically use a lot, unless I'm just like quickly trying to do something, uh, like a quick example, because it's not the most um, accessible code in terms yeah, it's of... obscure. Yeah, but it's a, a cool, quick trick. But we also have better APIs in ES2015 to handle that. There's a find method uh, that you can use on arrays to return, or a find index uh, that will allow you to... Uh, run a function and if it returns true at any point then that means that whatever exists in the array and you don't have to specifically be looking for the index and then figuring out if it's not negative one
3: right totally i see the tilde used in a very similar fashion when working with hardware where we don't have those nice apis and a lot of the time what you have is c and so it is really really a nice trick to get stuff into like a zero or one or you know just trying to be able to treat it as a true ball which is really cool
4: so could you bang uh... bang 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 bitwise (laughs) index of would that work
2: oh man yeah (laughs) that would return true or false wow (laughs) um the other cool trick uh that that also kind of came out of yes 2015 is uh the um destructuring so specifically array destructuring in this example where you can say like const a uh, bc inside of square brackets equals this array and it will take the first three values from that array and put those into those variables so then you can access them just through those variables and that's really helpful for avoiding having to say like oh you know this array sub zero is this and this array sub one is this and having that all over it kind of lets you better name the variables and use those names throughout so that your code is more legible. And one really cool trick that you can do with that is uh, combine that with like regular expression um, methods in JavaScript. Uh, So one example is the match string um, method. So on a string, there's a match function. You can call that and pass in a regular expression to it. And inside of that regular expression, you can have captures. So the, the parentheses and then what you what gets returned from there is an array that contains uh, everything that was captured. So the everything that was captured from the regular expression is the first thing in the array and then each of the little sub-captures within there uh, will be the next items in the array. So at sub 1 it'll be the first thing, 2 uh, will be the next thing, and so on. And so you can use that destructuring to name those variables. So one example that um, uh, I kind of think of is the ability to, like, for example, get the month, day, and year from a date string. So if you had 2018 06 14, you could match those, like, match the first four numbers to this variable. So capture that, the next two as the month, capture that, and the next two uh, in between the dashes as um, the day. And you can actually, if you want to skip the the first value in the array or skip the first n number of values, you can just put commas inside of that destructuring. So it will just skip that and give you the next item in there. So you can say, for example, uh, const and then open square brackets, comma, year, month, day, close the square bracket and then call that function. And you'll get back three variables, the year, the month and the day that just match exactly what those are. So it's a pretty cool way to use those um, and make your code more accessible um, just by making it easier to read.
4: Mm. That's a spectacular feature. Now, what would happen in the case of a non-match, or maybe a partial match? In this case, would you have undefineds in those variables, or what would they end up as?
2: Uh, yeah, I think you would have uh, undefineds
3: in there. Um, real-time feedback.
4: <laughs> as he pops <laughs> open his console and executes it.
3: <laughs> or you would end up with like you know if I'm just thinking like stuff could end up like in a different order even. Yeah. So, like, if you have something that's not as concrete about matching, like it's like, oh, it could be this or maybe this, then stuff could get moved around. So, you know, one entry might not be what you're expecting just because you got less results back or something like that.
4: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there could be some potential potholes in in here. Um, I would think in I love lots how of cases it is. you might want, yeah, absolutely. I think the a match, a non-match, you might actually want to raise or you know follow a different code path altogether. If you can't get that to hit, but that'd be kind of be up to the circumstance. Did you get our real time follow up? Did you try it?
2: Yeah. Yep. Uh, You just get undefined back.
4: Okay.
3: Pretty easy to check for. That's cool.
4: The, the, the little, uh, the commas, like the pre leading commas when you don't want variables there is a little bit esoteric. I prefer it to be more explicit and maybe like, uh, I've seen other languages where it'll be like you'd prefix it with an underscore and say like, or have it say unused or something. And oh, that yeah. would indicate that there that you expect a thing there. Because when I first see this comma, and we'll put this little snippet in the notes as well so y'all can look at it. But when I see that comma, I think it was accident. Like I was even going to ask you, do you have, a, you have a typo there? So it's just a little bit uh, esoteric, but super handy.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. The, the benefit of, th- of that is it's not creating the variable. Uh, and especially if you're using something like const, you're not locking yeah. that variable in the scope to be that value. Uh, so there, there's one nice caveat to it, but uh, you're right, it does look a little bit like a syntax error when you first look at it.
1: Hey, everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer here at Changelog. You know how important it is to stay in the know. And our weekly newsletter helps you and thousands of other developers do exactly that. It's the developer news that matters, nothing more and nothing less. Visit changelog.com and subscribe today.
2: All right, so let's talk about uh, clean Git history. Now, this is an article uh, that thechangelog.com actually posted. Uh, uh, I don't know when exactly, but uh, a little while ago. Uh, and it's an article from GitLab uh, called Keeping uh, get hi- Your Git History Clean, or How and Why You Would Want To. And uh, I thought it'd be an interesting topic to, to go over. While it's not JavaScript specific, it is something that we all typically have to work with uh, especially if we're dealing with git which seems like everyone is at this point so um i thought we'd jump right into it and talk about um what the article is is trying to convey and some of the the useful scenarios and maybe some opinions when i brought this up jared kind of mentioned that this is the ultimate um uh what did you say the ultimate
4: the biggest um, bike shed.
3: The
2: biggest bike shed, yeah. We <laughs> uh, all the colors, and, yeah. And that—that's something that I, I really feel like, um, I, I really feel when I'm bringing up issues with like Git history, and you know, trying not to complain too much about it because maybe it doesn't matter, but to me it does. Um, and so yeah, uh, the first thing in this article, um, really kind of talks about uh, why meaningful history is important, and. They had a few examples, but I didn't really think that they, they gave much of a, yeah. a, of a reason why it's meaningful to have a, a clean history. Uh, but from that, uh, they, they just put kind of understanding the flow of change on a project and being able to quickly find where bugs were introduced. Um, Jared or Suze, do you have any, any um, pros or cons or, or yays or nays as to why you might prefer a clean git history or whether you don't care at all?
3: I definitely am in favor of having a good, clean Git history um, in almost all cases. And so I will admit that when I'm doing working on a dumb project that I don't intend on either sharing publicly or having anyone else work on it, I tend to kind of, um, I tend to just, you know, have silly cathartic, you know, Git messages that are silly. And that's just my way of rebelling because, you know, I do care so much about it when I'm actually Mm. working with people. But I think for me um the biggest advantage in having a nice clean git history is when you work with um different people on teams and um I know that that, that the um, article mentions things like Git bisect, for example. And so let's say there's a bug that's been introduced. Um, and let's say you've got this um, continuous integration um, set up for releasing um, software. And so you've got several team members' work all coming together. And if the CI has kind of missed something and production breaks or there's like this really weird thing um, that QA found, you can... First, look at all the git messages um, where they're they're accurately descriptive, right? Um, which I use first because it's the the fastest thing you can do. And so going burning down the list of stuff that actually went into that release is really, really useful. So you can actually kind of see maybe there's keywords in that git commit message that kind of points at a specific feature, and that feature might be the thing that has the bug in it. So I really appreciate having descriptive. Um, but succinct get messages um, on commits. And then if you if you don't actually find anything, having neat um, having kind of neat commits that are very contextually uh, heavy, allows you to run git bisect in order to kind of jump between um, different pieces of work that were done in order to find that bug so I guess they're like my top two reasons why you would want to clean history Um, and they both come down to it's way way quicker to debug something when it goes wrong
4: so I definitely agree with everything Sue's just said and I am pro clean commit history Uh, I would Bring the question of what exactly does "clean" mean, because uh, I think people will define it differently depending on who you are. Um, but specifically, I'm I'm an advocate of of high quality commit messages and um, providing like a single line summary, and then allowing yourself to go into context and detail um, down below. Because yeah, I've often found, actually, just recently, I've found a circumstance where I made a change probably maybe a year or two ago to a specific file that's like an nginx configuration. And I was sitting here staring at the code and I was wondering why is that config in there? I don't know what it does. There was a comment on it which was like the worst comment ever. It described the setting. And it's like, I know better than that but I definitely wrote that comment which basically said what the setting was. Um, so it, not useful comment in the code. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll just get blame this and figure out why did I set this? Because that's what I want to know, right? Like, that's why history matters because later on we become archaeologists or, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes is, or in your case, you know, Dr. House, Nick, and (laughs) we need to find out like why, like more about it. We need that context. And I went to get blame and I checked out the line, I checked out the commit and the commit message was identical to the comment above the freaking line of code. And I thought that is a terrible job by me. I've basically like past me, just screwed current me out of like being able to know something. (laughs) And so, I mean that alone, and I mean that happens all day, every day, let alone you extrapolate to like teams and larger things. This is me basically, you know, removing context from myself, but that's where those things need to live. And uh, when you don't have, i'll just say specifically high quality commit messages we talk about clean history are we talking about like like not merge commits and like keeping the actual branching clean as well um but specifically on on comments uh commit messages like make those good it's worth your time unless like sue says you're like a throwaway thing or you're just you have more fun to just like say something silly or nobody will ever see it. But if it's like, hmm. if, if the code matters, then the commit messages should be good.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I will go as far as to say that I I really want the history to be clean as well. Um, typically, that means that I avoid merge con or sorry merge commits uh, any way that I can, and I'll just squash and rebase everything when I'm going to master uh, to keep things nice and linear when I'm looking at the the history tree. Uh, to me, that that makes more sense. I can see an argument where merge commits help as well, because you might just have that one commit, but then you can see a breakdown of everything that happened within there, but also that those, um, the commits within the merge should also be cleaned up so that you don't have a bunch of uh, superfluous commits that really don't mean anything. A great example of something that I've seen on, on projects before is like uh, they'll just merge every, all of the commits in without changing anything or squashing anything down. And so you'll see, uh, one specific example that I had was I was going through and I was trying to figure out why this line in a file was the way it was. And so I did what you do. I get blamed it and found, um, not necessarily, I didn't care who the person was that made the change, but I just wanted to see what, why it was made in that commit. And, uh, I scroll up to the top and see the commit message. And it was just, Fixing code climate errors or fixing j s lint errors and or js lint errors, whatever, and um that really wasn't helpful to me because they they didn't prune that out of there, so uh, it really didn't give me any context about what errors were around that, so I would have to find that commit and then look at the messages around that maybe to help figure out why the code changed um so that that's one big big uh reason that i I like to keep the history clean. another reason is um I like to present the code in the way the history of the code in the way that it should have occurred instead of the way that it actually occurred. Um, <laughs> and that that's kind of important uh, to me, I guess on some of the projects that I go into uh, I, I do consulting. And so um, before I deliver code to uh, a customer um, you know, we can have a whole bunch of internal commits and bugs and, and all sorts of messages, but pruning that uh, and cleaning it and, Presenting it in the way that it should have occurred instead of the the chaotic way that it did occur uh, helps to keep the the customer's confidence in us high so I, I like doing that
4: so on devil devil's advocate on that would be that you're you say you're keeping a clean history, but actually you are changing history to better suit your needs so you could say you're you're rewriting history, and there's plenty of people that believe that the trade-offs there are worse than the trade-offs of having you know, too many branches and some commits that didn't mean anything. And these other things, cause that actually represents history. Whereas you are rewriting history. How dare you?
2: Yeah. Good books aren't written, Jared. They're rewritten. That's a... <laughs> I think that's a quote by Michael Crichton. <laughs> that's a good one.
3: There is such a thing as rewriting history too much, right? Where some people get a little overzealous. Uh, well, I guess in my opinion of, of trying to squash things down too much, trying to, you know, achieve too much with one commit just for the sake of cleanliness? What's What are people's takes on that?
2: There's no such thing. No, uh, <laughs> I, I <do> agree. <laughs>
3: uh, the one thing that I really look
2: for is, is keeping attribution. Uh, so I wouldn't want to yeah. squash down somebody else's commits and then make them my own.
4: Absolutely. I've definitely, I mean, specifically with like long running branches, like a feature branch, that's a large feature. And maybe multiple people worked on it. You know, you're not going to be rebasing it throughout that it's lifespan because maybe it's already like on, on GitHub and people are committing to it. Um, in those circumstances, I'm okay with a merge commit there because it's kind of a thing. Like it's kind of a historic event. It's part of the history it was like, this thing was a big moving branch alongside the main branch. And then when did it come back in? Right. When was it merged? And so I don't have it that, that doesn't bug me as much. That being said, if I'm working solo on a specific thing and I'm on a branch, I will I'll rebase and I will squash in that circumstance so I'm, I'm I'm not hardcore on either side of the fence
3: that makes sense One dislike that I have that I've seen from time to time is um, when when somebody is merging in master to a feature that's like long running and they're not rebasing and so they run into conflicts, uh, merge conflicts and they fix them and a lot of people commit um, on the command line with like the dash M flag so they can like write a message and sometimes they'll forget that by default, you know, merging something in and when you have conflicts and then um, fix them and commit it it will still append the normal you know, um, merge commit message and some people accidentally Override that, and they'll just write something like um, fixing merge conflicts, and then you completely lose context of what happened. And sometimes it just makes it look more convoluted, um, and that, for some reason, kind of um, annoys me when you when you lose that merge commit in the first place, because it's really sometimes only useful for showing the history of when somebody actually put um, master back in and and brought it up to speed.
2: Yeah, definitely. And and on the the topic of kind of longer running feature branches, I think that that's, um, one area that that's difficult to keep the history clean, uh, because you can constantly want to be, um, bringing in like updates. If you need updates from like master, uh, to work in that longer running feature branch, uh, that can be difficult. And you, you can resort to, uh, things like merging merging down into that and then merging that back up. And that's where, uh, maybe I'm not doing it right, but that's where I've run into a lot of, um, problems where i just give up and i don't really understand the history at that point because there's Mm. the the same commits being merged down and then they like it's almost like when you look at the graph it looks like they exist in two places even though they they really don't but it uh it gets confusing and convoluted from there
3: agreed i've definitely made a huge mistake once when working for a large team that um were Definitely moving much faster than a previous team I was on. So, you know, it was at the point in my career where I moved from a small team that didn't have continuous integration into a larger team that had a lot of continuous integration. And so for long running features where you can't always just incrementally ship it under feature flags and things like that, um, I got to a point where I had to... You know, um, merge master in or rebase master in, and I had let it go too long without realizing. And there were so many commits coming in, and uh, you know, there were changes to the same files that um, I was working on. And I ended up with a a rebase, um, like a rebase session with conflicts in. Like I think. 144 different steps and so I had to <laughs> fix the conflicts <laughs> and then do like you know git rebase dash dash continue like up to a hundred times wow. and I was so both like ashamed of myself even though you know there's a first time for everything when that kind of thing happens and also just the sheer you know size of the issue that I had and like how am I possibly ever going to deploy this
4: related story I was live streaming on Monday afternoons uh, last Monday and I had It had been a little while as we're open sourcing our show notes so that you can edit the show notes on GitHub and also edit it from the CMS. That way people can help us make the show notes better. And I've I've been like Twitch streaming while I do that, and it had been about a month and a half since I worked on that particular feature. And so on Monday, I was back at it. I was like, all right, let's do this, and I got started. And the first thing I did was when I went to Rebase Master... And I spent about 45 minutes of that Twitch stream it rebasing. <laughs> it was the most boring, like stupid. And I was like, I couldn't remember like what I was doing. And I was just like, this is not, this is not good streaming. But it wasn't 144 in a row. That's for sure.
3: <laughs> Solving merge conflicts is probably one of the most difficult things to do on a stream as well, because you need like a hundred percent concentration. And yes. I have definitely failed at trying to resolve tricky things like that on stream and i'll just say to people hey, I'm going to actually abort this. I'm going to do it off stream and then we're going to move on to another thing. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, watch the repo if you want to see <laughs> me resolve this <laughs> off stream for sure. And that that crazy rebase, um, sorry, that like intense rebase that I talked about earlier, I actually took it home with me that night because I didn't want a single interruption. And so I think I worked from 7 p.m. till 10 p.m. that night. And that obviously cut into my personal time, which meant I never made that mistake ever again. <laughs> but I totally agree about the stream stuff it just feels so boring and also you just feel like you don't have your best brain to actually fix it and it's like a double whammy
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i couldn't imagine doing trying to do that live Um, that would be that would be awful and probably boring but also at the same time uh it's reassuring to hear that you know everyone goes through these problems so (laughs) it's a it's a good thing overall um, now, the article kind of goes into four different scenarios, and they're all kind of based around rewriting history. And we kind of already talked about that. And when you rewrite history, you do end up having to force push back up. And so I, I was curious what your thoughts are on, on force pushing. Uh, do you have any qualms with that?
4: Every time I do it, I feel like I've failed. <laughs> <laughs> with that being said, I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> not all the time, but yeah, I mean, you're not supposed to do it, right? It messes up everybody else. But
3: I've I've <laughs> lost work as a result because somebody else did that and yeah. had mm-hmm. no option but to redo that work. You know, I came in in the morning oh. after you know working on something the night before, and I came in and I I pulled everything down and you don't, there's no way to really see that coming, right? It's just a routine fetch and merge or a routine pull. And I realized that all of my work was gone because a colleague had set up their, they didn't like merge uh, commits. So they set up their Git config to just do a rebase. And Mm -hmm. somehow that had erased the stuff that I'd pulled up. So because um, they, they thought that they had to do dash F if you ever like rebase on master. So Mm -hmm. Something happened and they ended up just force pushing up and it just totally erased my stuff. And so usually I have the motto of if you're working by yourself and you're force pushing because, you know, you're trying to hide embarrassing mistakes that you made on your own personal GitHub repo, that's okay. Um, But if you're working with teams, um, there's almost no reason to really take that risk.
2: So I'm going to get controversial here. Adam in the chat room is also saying that, uh, if, you're, if you ever have to force push, you're doing it wrong. I take pride in my force pushing. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in, keeping, in keeping with the, the spirits of um, the history that should have happened instead of what did happen uh, and the scenarios that this article kind of goes through, it goes through changing the most recent commit, changing a specific commit, um, adding, removing, or combining commits, so uh, interactive rebasing, and then a complete fresh start. Uh, those are all rewriting history, and then you have to to force push from there. And I'm completely comfortable force pushing when I know that it's uh, my own feature branch and nobody else should have really been on that doing anything. Mm. So I'm ideally not affecting anyone. Uh, GitHub does actually let you specify like you can never not push force push to master so it will fail that for you uh, and that's a good thing to set i I would never do it on master except for when i did it a week ago um (laughs) and that was to remove sensitive information (laughs) uh (laughs) but ideally I, i did communicate with my whole other team of one other person and let him know so it wasn't a big deal that's the other thing communication is is very important with that um but i i think that uh, amending commits is something that I do quite often. And then I'll just force push that you can also, uh, there, there's a better flag than dash dash force. There's dash dash force with lease. And so it will do a force push, but only if no other commits have been pushed to that. So if somebody else did push something up to your branch, um, it will fail your force push because you have commits that, um, because other commits ha- have occurred since you last pushed.
4: That sounds like that should be the default for dash dash force. Exactly. And then you should change it to like dash dash force. Yes, I know what I'm doing. Kind of a flag. If you're going to do the other one, you know? Yeah. Force with lease. I mean, who comes up with these, these command, these flags, like, yeah, like L E A S E. Like you have a lease on an apartment. Yep. All right. No comment.
2: I don't, I I'm very comfortable with, with that. And that's uh, kind of how I, how I help to maintain a clean Git history. GitHub also does a lot, uh, more recently with, with allowing you to do that straight from a pull request where you can uh, specify that you want to merge this pull request or you want to rebase and then merge this pull request. So it would yeah. ideally do uh, just a fast forward merge and not actually have a merge commit or you can do a squash and merge. So it'll squash all of the commits from that pull request down into one and then merge that. And that's pretty cool because when it's tied to a pull request like that, um, Git's also keeping track of that branch. You can restore that branch if you need to later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really helpful for later debugging, but that's a, a GitHub specific feature. I'll tell you
4: another reason why that's cool is because you don't have to know all of the intricacies of how to do it from the command line stuff. Like, I'm I'm a command line user. Have been my, my entire career. I've been using Git for a decade. I cannot remember how I. If you told me to squash these and rebase or something from the command line, I would be in the Git man pages for like 15 minutes getting it right. I think that's awesome because that brings that feature, which is very nice for when you want to use it, you know, behind a big green button. And that's spectacular.
0: All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at one PM US Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Radio snap a podcast. Go into Overcast and Favorite It. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno cloud servers. Head to slash ChangeLog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.